Hello and welcome to This Just Is. My name is Ian and I'm glad you're here. I hope that your friends and family are doing well amongst the craziness that surrounds us. Seems like we are having yet another wave of tension and uncertainty. And let's all hope this passes and we move towards a bit more cohesion and clarity for the long term. Let's all hope that's the case. Our episode today explores our very human need to be creative. It is my contention that all people are creative beings to some extent, and a desire to express ourselves is one that is built into our genetic code. It's in our DNA. There's an incredible documentary called Cave of Forgotten Dreams that if you haven't seen it, I would encourage you and highly recommend you check it out. The film explores prehistoric cave paintings found in southern France, These paintings and murals are estimated to be roughly 40,000 years old. The depictions show in detail what the world around these early humans was like. Herds of animals, bison, deer, wild horses, and rhinos. Detailed images of lions and bears. Animals that you could never imagine all being in southern France today. It's really incredible to see. These also aren't primitive in their design. These images depict movement and a use of perspective and shading and color in ways that you wouldn't anticipate given their age. These artists had an incredible high level of skill. I found myself sort of in awe of the entire thing, but there was one point in the film that really made me quite emotional, and I wasn't sure why at the time. The scientists who study the cave discuss handprints that were placed in the cave intentionally, almost like an artist signing their work. And from these prints, they could tell a lot about who these people were, their age, their gender, etc. The handprints were placed in a way that signified that they wanted others to see their work, that they were there, and it was important to them to express themselves through a visual medium. It was almost as if they were calling out to me, the viewer, thousands of years later, saying, Hi, I see you. Do you see me? And it was a lot to process for me. What I found so interesting was that even tens of thousands of years ago, these individuals wanted to leave their mark to some extent. They wanted to show others their interpretation of existence, as I mentioned, what was important to them, and they chose to do so by creating artwork. It was inspiring. I think part of the reason why I got so emotional is because the reality of if I would even leave my handprint on the cave wall began to sink in. What could I contribute in some small way to encourage others to express themselves the way that these early human artists had done. I believe that a lot of the anger and frustration that we see in the world stems from people not being able to understand how best to express themselves and who they truly are. Many of us have become disconnected from that human need to draw on the cave wall. For me, right now, it's a podcast. Maybe down the line, it's a book or some other form of expression. But I don't see this as a desire that ends. We are all here, in my opinion, to manifest and create things and inspire others to do so. It's part of our human experience. Even if you don't consider yourself artistic, there are many forms that your art can take. And that's important to understand. It's about finding a way to externalize the internal through an expressive and constructive mechanism. There is no right or wrong way to do this, in my opinion. So... What do we do with all of this? I thought it would be great to speak to a friend of mine who also happens to be a best-selling author. Her name is Tara Schuster. Tara's book, By Yourself, The Fucking Lilies, is an amazing example of a human being doing their best and trying to help others do the same. 
It's part memoir, part self-help, part guidebook to self-expression and creating rituals in your life to serve as an artistic conduit. It's well-composed and full of insight, and so is Tara. She's one of the hardest-working and expressive people I've met. She isn't afraid to discuss things in her life that were and are painful, how she's worked to overcome past trauma, and how she's added creative discipline to her life in order to achieve her goals and express the truest form of who she is. It's inspiring, and so is Tara. So, without further ado, here she is, my friend and best-selling author, Tara Schuster. Tara, thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I know. You are my friend, and you're now, I want to say budding, just because it's a for the parlance of our times, but you're not really a budding author. You're now a well-known author. And when I knew you, or when I have known you, you were writing a book and you liked to write and you wrote articles for the New Yorker and other publications and they were really great. But the main thing that you did was you were a development executive, you were a media executive and you were a pretty high level one and a coworker of mine. And I guess the, the basic question I wanted to ask to kick this off is like, when did you decide that you wanted to write a book? When did you realize it? And how did that manifest? You talk a little bit about it in the book itself, but for people that maybe haven't read the book or are curious about how you transition from one job to another, did you always want to write? Did someone encourage you to do it? Like, what was your inspiration? It's so funny when you talk about that time because it seems like so long ago, but it was like one year ago and I can completely visualize sitting in my glass office looking directly into your glass office. Um, and I'm sorry if you saw anything, if you saw anything untoward, I no, apologize. No, no, you were always now. a perfect gentleman. Um, but it's, it's really funny because yeah, we know each other like really through that context of, of being colleagues. And you're always, as you know, one of my favorite colleagues. Thank you. Yeah. And, and as you know, so at that time, I guess to answer your question, it's sort of like two answers. The first is I didn't set out to write a book at all. I set out to save my life. That's like the the genesis of the book is sort of I grew up in a neglected, psychologically abusive household. And by the time I was 25 and just started working at Comedy Central, you know, I was on the path towards, um, you know, being on the corporate ladder. But inside, I was a miserable mess, girl hysterically sobbing on the subway next to you. I was good at work, but very bad at life. And I might have kept just going that way, sort of hustling for my worth at work and then going home and self-medicating with weed and booze and boys and just like every possible self-destructive thing I could do, um, except that I hit rock bottom on my 25th birthday when I drunk dialed my therapist and threatened to take my life. That's a rare kind of shame. Like even like I was completely out of control at that point in my own life. But even I was like the next morning listening to the voicemails of my therapist who was trying to find me. Um, I, I, I felt ashamed of myself. I finally got worried about my life and I realized if I don't fix my life, it's not guaranteed that I'll have much more to live. And so out of just a dogged, 
even though I had really been contemplating ending my life, I decided that next morning I want to live and I want to live in a way that is not miserable. I don't have parents to go ask how to do this. I did not have a wise mentor to take me under their wing. So, you know, I just, I used a Google doc because I had been like a crazy student who had always been looking for validation at, at school. Um, I used a Google doc and I was like, I'm going to make a curriculum for how to reparent myself. Like, what are values? What are principles? What are vegetables? Like, genuinely, what are they? Which one should I be eating? Is quinoa a thing? What is it exactly? Still don't know the answer to that question. But I, I attacked it. I asked anybody in my orbit for advice. I read every book you could. I read memoirs like they were self-help. Like I'd read Nora Ephron as if she was my mom trying to teach me about how to drink alcohol and go to dinner parties and, and that kind of stuff. And by the end of five years, really when you and I kind of more met because I was now in development in our jobs, I was this totally different person. You know, I was an adult. I had taken care of myself and I had kind of grown myself into the person I wanted to be. And so that was the inspiration for the book was that I had been keeping this Google Doc that by the end was 600 pages. That was to save my life. On the other kind of side of it was I was always a writer. I went to Brown for playwriting. Um, I thought I was going to be a playwright in New York when I moved there after college. And I went to work at the public theater. And I just noticed everybody was like dirt poor and like miserable. And there was no health insurance. People were like getting paid in booze. I'm like, is this like a canal that we're building in like 18th century America? Like, how is this the payment system? No knock to the public theater. Um, but I, I had grown up with so much instability that I was just like, I can't do this for my life. And so Comedy Central, yeah, the first job I had there was at a place called jokes.com where I was, you know, essentially a data entry person. You know, my friends were like, who just graduated from Brown are working at McKinsey and Goldman Sachs. And I'm like, I work at jokes.com. And people would literally turn away from me at a party. They're like, bye, I don't need to know you. But it so it wasn't my plan to be an executive. It was my plan to be a writer. I really wanted stability. I had no courage to do the writing, you know, as my full-time job. And Comedy Central was pretty fucking cool and like a great place to be. And, and so that really became a home to me while I accidentally worked on a book because it really wasn't the intention. The intention was to save my life. That's, that's so interesting. And almost, you know, I'm sure you understand like what the dark night of the soul is when you, you seem to like have that rock bottom where you realize like, I need to do something here to save myself in some capacity. And then you decided that you needed some amount of stability and you needed a steady job that was going to pay you or you could advance at and something that you didn't mind doing and that you actually maybe liked doing maybe not as much as writing, but, but I, I have a feeling that at some point you kind of felt like, well, now I need to save my life again because I can't continue to do this development job too. Because even though you were really adept and successful and I worked alongside you and I, I saw how good at it you were, I could tell 
that you were, cause I knew you were in the process of writing that I was like, I don't think she's going to be doing this too much longer because I just could tell that you were being pulled there. And I also, yeah. during that time, I loved working there. There were a lot of great people that we got to work with, but I also felt this pull and how, you know, to, to do something else or to do something different or to expand. I didn't, I didn't have it. I, don't, I still don't have as much of a directive as you do, but how did you manage performing at a high level at a job that you sort of knew wasn't really suiting you anymore? Because I didn't do well at that. Once I realized that I, I didn't necessarily want to do that particular job, I, I couldn't handle it very well. And I just was wondering, like, what coping mechanisms did you deploy once you realized that? Or was the writing such a distraction that you knew that eventually you would transition over? Like, how did that work out for you? Yeah, it's such a good question. And it's one that I get pretty frequently because there are so many people who are in jobs that aren't exactly right. And they're kind of wondering, do I stick with it? You know, do I pursue what, my, what I'm passionate about? And for me, I thought of it. So first off, it was my obsession. My job at Comedy Central was my utter obsession, boyfriend, husband, lover, brother, sister. I was obsessed with that job. And I was obsessed with the, uh, the idea that I could run interference for writers because that's like what I wanted to be. So I was like, oh, maybe I could help talent. Um, and I really looked at it through that lens as like, this is the thing I'm doing to give to what I love. This is the thing I'm doing that's going to give me structure and stability. And I'm going to do the thing I want. So there really was a little bit of um, like an antsy moment, I'd say. I was the digital producer on Key and Peele. And that I knew. So I loved Key and Peele. I loved Keegan and Jordan. You know, I was super lucky that I pitched myself to be their digital producer. I ended up segment producing all of their Obama translated sketches. I helped write some other Van Davian and Mike stuff. You know, I, I had an incredible amount of opportunity because it was digital and it was the Wild West. But even though I was being creative, I felt this like tension of I need to express myself and my voice. And it's amazing that I'm learning from Keegan and Jordan. Are you kidding me? These are my teachers right now. Like what? And I need to do my own thing. So at that moment, that's when I was like, I need to start submitting to the slush pile of the New Yorker. And I need to start doing stupid, you know, listicles for Hello Giggles. And I just never asked anybody if it was okay that I was also doing this creative work. And that's how I coped was I just never saw Comedy Central as like the be all end all everything I had even though I was obsessed with it. I was like, I'm just also going to write. And so it never was a problem for me. It really, uh, in some ways, you know, recently I've been like, do I want to get back into being an executive? Because in some ways it really frees my mind because I, I tend to write in the morning and then it's nice to have something to turn, completely turn my attention in a different way and do things that don't need my mind to be creative in that way. And, and so for me, I found this balance of like the mornings, you know, also I don't have kids. I don't have a partner. My time is really my time. So I'm able to write a lot in the early morning, turn it off, 
going to work. And that's, I mean, that's how I wrote the book. And I, I think the reason I was able to write it relatively quickly was because I had so many time constraints. Um, I really c- couldn't um, mess around because the book was due. So it never got that bad for me. And in fact, it was to my advantage to have that job. I think simply because I was like, it. I'm obsessed with it, but it's a job. It's not like my end goal and I'm going to pursue the thing I love at the same time. Like n- my job never came at the expense of my dreams. So I, I never had that. Yeah, that, that's, I think that's like an important distinction because I think you had a, sort of a clear directive within yourself of like, I want to write. And so I can do this other job that I also do enjoy. But I think a lot of people don't have that understanding of, okay, well, this is all sort of in service for my writing or my sculpting or the business I want to start. So I can do this job and my perspective is healthy because it's keeping a roof over my head and I'm working with good people and I'm still doing cool stuff, even though it might not be my number one passion. I can put a lot of attention towards it because I know that there's something else. For some people, they just don't know what that something else is. And I think that that can be problematic because for me, I had all this sort of misplaced discomfort. I didn't even know why. And it was because I just wasn't doing the thing that I felt that I was meant to do. Yeah. All I knew was the thing I was meant to do was just not that thing. Right. And so I think that's a lot of people fall in, you know, a lot of it is about sort of, you know, finding the thing you want to do or finding something that feeds a portion of your psyche or persona in a way where you feel that it can allow you to you're doing things in service of that and I think that that's like a tricky thing but something that's really important for people to gain perspective on yeah and Um, I, I think people get hung up on you know one thing I hated when I graduated college in 2008 the most popular commencement address was follow your bliss like find your passion and I was like that's so hard to do. I don't know what my passion is. I'm like 20. What, what are you kidding me right now? My passion is to get stoned and watch planet earth. And so I think what people get stuck with is I need to know exactly what it is. Like, what's my passion? What's my purpose? And then they stop trying things because they're so obsessed with like, it's going to need to be this one thing. And Really, I think the answer is just take one baby step in exploring anything that you're interested in. You know, even with my writing, I started with like short comedy pieces, like satire pieces, not memoir. I didn't even start where I kind of am. It was just one stumble and I had no idea where it was going to end up. I still have no idea where it's going to end up. I just like to experiment with writing. It's one of, you know, now I've discovered I really like speaking. I really like going into communities and talking to readers. And I really like moderating panels. Like they're all things I've found just by doing them and not worrying so much about like, is this my passion? Is this my number one thing? Yeah. I think just the idea of like, try anything, really try it and see how you feel about it. If you have any inclination, if you have any inclination towards something and you don't need to make it the center of your life, just try. Yeah. And you never know if it could become the center of your life. If it's something you really love and want to get, want to do and want to get great at. Totally. Yeah. That doesn't harm you to try. The, the other thing I want to talk about, and you touch on this in your book at length, but I think this is helpful for people that maybe are looking to start some sort of creative endeavor 
And I was hoping that you could like walk us through your own creative process. And, you know, like I said, you talk about it in your book, if you haven't read the book, shame on you, go read <laughs> it. but, um, like, how do you sit down to do what you do? And what are some very basic universal tips for creative people or people wanting to become creative people that translate not only to writing, but sort of creating anything? Totally. I, I think the first most important thing is not to take it too seriously. You know, that um, I think people get the idea that to be creative, to be a writer is like you commune with God. You have this moment of inspiration and the circumstances need to be right. You need to be in the right apartment at the right desk and the right this and the right that. And so I can't create because I don't have any of those circumstances. And that is such bullshit. All it is to write, to paint, to cook, to whatever is to do that thing. That's it. Like, I'm a writer simply because I'm compelled to write. What I can do to help myself is make the circumstances around that a little easier on myself. So, but I just, my first and foremost thing is, it is not something beyond anybody. C creativity is not about inspiration. It's about commitment. It's like any habit, any skill, anybody can develop a writing practice or any kind of artistic practice without inspiration. So for me, there are a few things that really help. One, when I first started writing, well, I guess one is sort of like a thought thing. I, I was hung up on, is this going to be good? Is this going to be interesting? Do I have anything to say? Well, it's not worthwhile. So what I would do in the beginning is I would sit at my desk and I would visualize putting a cardboard box on my desk and putting in the words good, and interesting. And then I would close the cardboard box and then I would throw it off the table because you're really not responsible for the words good or interesting. You are only responsible for showing up and doing because if you're too concerned about like judgment words in the beginning of something, you just stifle it and ruin it and get to in your head and you don't even see where it could possibly go. So my first thing is whatever creative endeavor you want to try, simply try it without it needing to be the best, perfect, good, interesting, any of those words. No, thank you. We don't need those. And the next is to find a process or a habit that really works for you. So for me, I experimented, you know, I would try to write at night after we got home from our jobs, which could be really stressful. And that did not work. By the time I got home, I was just like burnt out and wanted to watch Shark Tank. You know, I had no interest in writing. So I started waking up earlier and carving out time in the morning. And then I would find myself, you know, being on Instagram or Twitter instead of actually writing. So, that, so then I realized, okay, no, I need to set a timer on my phone and everything has to be closed and I'm only writing for this hour. And that is how I wrote the majority of the book was I'd get up at 6.40, make coffee, 7 to 8. I was just glued to my desk. And when my, you know, the timer on my phone went off, I was free. I was free from writing for the day. So it's really about like finding what process works for you. And then as you get into it, the third thing I'd say is trusting your process and that's something that I, to this day, have to work on. I'm, look, I'm in my home office right now, and I'm looking at a big board that says, trust your process. Because in for me, I don't know how it is for other people, but 
when I'm at the very beginning of writing something, it is like an overwhelming soup and stew of emotions and thoughts and feelings and self-doubt. And I have to remember that that's when I'm in the generating phase, it's full of emotions and ideas and it's like a crazy nebula cloud. And as I get into the process, it gets calmer and calmer and clearer and clearer. But the beginning for me is always really messy and gross. And so I just have to trust the process like, oh, right, it's always messy. It's always gross. It always sucks at the beginning. I just need to keep walking forward. Um, so it's it's really not judging a project too early. You know, give it some room to breathe. Don't be so concerned with is it good? Is it interesting? Finding a process, experimenting with the process, and then just putting your faith in the process that it delivers like, and it's like nothing new, like so many great artists over time, they develop a practice, a process. Um, so just trust all the artists and creative people before you that once you find a process, it's a lot easier to create work. It's almost like an artistic meditation in a way you have to come up with a, a discipline to do it. You know, I, I, and I, it's interesting because from my experience, most artists aren't necessarily the most self-organized, um, self-generating people they need to find that inspiration and i think that you seem to have a sort of a combination of tr making yourself find the inspiration which i think is is why you've had success because you take sort of a very structured approach to it which which i think for you works really well and i think i think for most people that are coming from sort of the quote-unquote normal world that aren't didn't come from an artistic background you know they didn't didn't have hippie parents who were saying, right. you know, just do whatever you want. Like, I think that that is a really good way to do it. Anyone who's had structure in their life and thrive with structure and are looking to have an artistic practice, setting yourself up for success is building structure around it the same way you do with exercise or anything. So I think that that's really, um, really good advice. The other thing I wanted to ask is when you're writing or when you're creating, do you know when you're writing something really good <laughs> like can do you do you know like when you hit a seam right like you're you're mining and all of a sudden like oh shit i found a seam of gold and i know okay just keep going don't screw this up just keep going or do you kind of get into a fugue state and then look at the work after and go oh there was something good in there i didn't even realize it yeah it was way more of a fugue state in fact if i think it's good it's probably bad <laughs> like if i'm like oh my god this is genius then my editor's like, uh, that chapter was very strange. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't think we're going to include that. No, I have no idea. There's only one thing I've ever written where at the moment I was like, oh, yeah, this is the shit. And that was I wrote this uh, piece about bachelorettes for The New Yorker. And as I wrote that, I was like, oh, this is. But it was really because it was a lot of my rage about going to bachelorettes. <laughs> it was like I like. Do like tapped into a, my rage about having to go pay all this money for all these bachelorettes where I was like not having fun. And also, you know, it was a lot of feelings that I had been able to tap into. Uh, no, but my process is I generate a ton of work. So I can even tell you I'm writing my second book right now and I am in the preface. So to write the preface, I took one month and I generated like a hundred pages of God knows what. And that's after two years of 
maybe another 600 pages of God knows what. And so this is like, I'm always rewriting. I mean, I know that's like writers rewrite. I am constantly rewriting the thing that I wrote one year ago. I'm writing it a new way. I'll like look back in a doc and be like, oh my God, I wrote this exact same paragraph, just slightly different, you know, one year ago. So in this preface, it's a bunch of stuff I've written before in a soup and I give it to my editor and she takes a look and together we then kind of figure out what are the nuggets here. And then once we figure out the nuggets are and maybe what the structure will be and, you know, what my angle is, then I'll take the nuggets, rewrite a mess of stuff, then we'll go in and refine again. For me, it's um, it's always a quantity game. Like if I, it's just like get out as much as I possibly can and then we'll go back and refine and just rinse and repeat forever for a couple of years. I think that that's really interesting because I know that not everyone's process is the same. So I think it's just good to hear one specific process and know that if there's something in your process that someone thinks might work, they can add that in, but there might be something that's working in their process that wouldn't work for you. Right. So totally. I think it's really, it's really great that you're then thank you for sharing sort of in that sort of intimate process because people can go, okay, because I think a lot of people, when they sit down, if you're trying to write, like there's, you, you get, you put expectation on your own, on the outcome, right? You're like, I want this to write, you know, the next great novel. Right. And it's like, you're not going to write the next <laughs> great novel in the one hour on a Tuesday. Yeah. It's a collective, it's a collective thing. And you're going to learn not only what, what you're writing, but how the process works for you as an individual. If you're just starting out, like you're not just, you don't get good at something in a week. You get good at things over time, like volume, volume and volume, like you're saying, like, you were writing hundreds of pages even after you wrote your first book just yeah. because that's what you do and that's how you generate your work. And other people might have a much more clinical approach to it, but for you, that's what works. And so I think it's important for other aspiring artists or creative people to kind of pick the things that they think might be helpful and apply those in their own process. Yeah, absolutely. And there are writers, you know, like I was just reading on Brene Brown's Instagram that when she writes, she like goes into into a hole and it's just all about writing. And that's not how I write at all. I write every single day in very stressed, very structured way, even though what I'm doing is generating a mass amount of just like paper. Um, it's very structured. So it's there's so many different ways to do it. It really is about finding what works for you and then making it a habit. Because I, I think people they get discouraged from something like writing be, simply because they don't give it enough time um, for it to become a habit and for it to stick. And it's just a craft like anything. It's like, it's a practice. It's a habit. It's a craft. It's not something divine. It's not something beyond anyone. If there's any artistic ambition you have it, you know, the, the difference, it might be, you know, like I'm not Joan Didion over here. Um, but I'm showing up and I'm doing the work and I'm getting to do the thing I want to do. Yeah. I think Brene Brown needs to go into a hole because she's writing about her guilt for, you know, six months or whatever it is. Yeah. She's writing about, you know, she, she's, she's exploring thematic things. Not that you're not exploring some of those things in your books too, but I mean, you know, someone like that is going like deep into like the, the, the recesses of like the outer edges of 
the extreme the pain, yeah. the soul, you know? So maybe for her, that process is, I just need to like dig my own hole and just live in it, you know? Yeah. So for her, she's found that process to work for her. I want to switch gears a little bit because I think that a lot of people might be interested and I was, I'm interested in this. Um, like, have you had a holy shit moment of like, Oh my God, I'm, I did it and I'm doing it. And what was that moment? What did it feel like? Was it a specific experience? Has that moment come or has it sort of crept up on you? Or is it you haven't even given, allowed yourself that perspective? Cause you've done a lot of cool stuff. You did a book tour, you've done a ton of podcasts. The book's a bestseller. You're writing another book. Like you're doing all the things, but I know you pretty well. And I know that you're like one of the things, and, I've, and anyone who reads your book knows like you have a hard time giving yourself the credit you deserve. And so have you had that wonderful realization yet? And if not, let's do it right now. <laughs> you know me very well, Ian. Um, I'm going to say no, I really haven't. You know, I, w I was on a girls weekend a couple weekends ago and someone said to me, we were going around wishing things for each of our friends. And someone said to me, I wish you could enjoy the view. And that resonated because I'm, I, it's something I need to cultivate is a better ability to enjoy the view and to, to say like, I got here. Um, I think the only thing that has kind of come close is I was at my local coffee shop recently. It, it had just opened. I was in my mask. I just wanted to see what was in the menu. And the barista said to me, oh, my God, are you Tara Schuster? And I was like, what? And I'm like in a mask. It was like, uh, yeah, and like sweaty, you know, outside running. And she, you know, told me how much the book meant to her and how much it had really helped her heal some childhood trauma and how it had been a friend to her and how it had done all the things I really hoped it would do for someone. And it was just out in the wild. Like, she wasn't DMing me. It was just completely random. And that that even I could be like, oh, this is a cool moment. Um, but no, I'm not. <laughs> I was just sort of like, What's next? What am I grinding hard enough? Mm -hmm. What what do I need to grind mm -hmm. on? What's next? That's sort of my way. Yeah, you're like Kobe Bryant. Oh yeah, you know, big time. It, it's like it's that that Mamba mental mentality of like it doesn't matter. You won the championship, or let's keep going. And I think that people who are hyper successful probably have that perspective, and that's what drives them and makes them hyper successful. Is that they, no matter what occurs in your life, even if you reach the goal. You go, oh, okay. And then you're looking out on the horizon for the next mountain to climb. And I don't think, you know, I've talked about this previously on other podcasts. I have this problem as well. Even when I've gone out and accomplished things I've set out to accomplish, I don't enjoy it as much as I should. And I'm working on that. And yeah. I, you know, from the outside looking in, I think the thing that your friend told you is true. You know, as your friend, I can tell you, like, you did it and you're doing it. And like, you should allow yourself, you know, a moment of like, you know, have a, have a glass of champagne tonight, you know, allow yourself that because you have done it and you are doing it and you are, you know, you have accomplished that thing and you're continuing to accomplish it. And just listening to you talk about your process, it's like, you're in it, you're doing it. And it's, it's Thank inspiring you. for someone like myself that's sort of unsure as to what my next steps are to go like, you know, build some structure and just try stuff and see what works, you know? So I commend you on, uh, you know, and, you know, and also the great thing about I think anyone that sets out on a creative endeavor is looking for, if this could just touch one person, if yeah. one person could 
look at this painting and go, wow, that really means something to me. Then you've accomplished what you want to accomplish. You want to touch people in a way that you wouldn't normally be able to do it without them necessarily knowing you as an individual and simply reading something you wrote and going, wow, this is really helpful to me. That's a, that's a huge accomplishment. And that's not the only person that felt that, you know, a lot of people, thousands of people felt that from reading your book. So I will just say, allow this to be your holy shit moment. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate it. And I often rely on my friends a little bit to be like, take a step back, like yeah. slow down. And it's funny what you say about, um, you know, helping one person when I was pitching the book, um, it sounded so cheesy, but really I felt like I was put on earth to write this book. And my only hope was that I could help one person. And that has always been the drive is talk to one person. And so the book really is written that way. Like I would imagine one person in the room sitting with me and as I write to this day it's always one person sitting here with me and we're right and I'm talking to them through my writing and so I think that's why the person at the coffee shop really like got to me because you know we're also in a pandemic so all the book tour all these big speaking events I've done have been virtual I haven't really met one-on-one people and so she was really the first here we are in real life eye to eye, still masked, but, um, and I think maybe that's why just from what you're saying, maybe that's why it resonated because it was one person. Um, and that's, you know, that is the most beautiful thing about writing the book is getting to connect at all. And, and I wrote it to make other people feel less lonely, but what I didn't expect is that they would make me feel less lonely and they would make me feel more like I belong. Yeah. And the interesting thing is the one person that you set out to help, whether you realize it or not, is you. Yeah. Too. Absolutely. You know, you helped, you helped yourself doing this thing. You said writing saved my life. Yeah. And you did that. You did, you did that. Obviously a lot of people helped you and you had support, you know, I I think people think like you're out there on an Island. It's like, no, you did the bulk of the work and there are people there supporting you, but you did this. And I think that that's important to recognize And us as individuals oftentimes are like, don't want to give ourselves any credit for anything. Yeah. And I know it's a hard thing for you to do. And I struggle with it too. So we're, we have, we're two inept people when it comes to this thing of like allowing yourself to feel good about things you've done. Yeah. Um, we tend to focus on other stuff that we shouldn't, but at least we know that, right. That's part of waking up and, and understanding that. The awareness is the key to changing anything. Like you can't change it if you don't know it. And definitely one thing I'm hoping to, developing myself is a little more self-compassion and a, absolutely yeah you know that's and that's a tough one and it's basically every you know my big question is how do you practically develop self-compassion like I get it meditation teacher I'm supposed to love myself I, I got what you just said to me what does that look like on the day-to-day at Trader Joe's? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, like when I, yeah, I don't want the gnocchi. Like, what do I, you know? Yeah, like how exactly. To, like, how do you apply that? Like, how do you do the walking yoga of loving yourself? Exactly. Uh, I totally understand. And it's a really, really, it's, it's difficult. I understand in theory. I guess it's small. It's like, it's like writing, right? It's like small adjustments yeah. in your behavior that eventually become larger shifts in the way that you speak to yourself and the way that you your patterns and your behaviors and your habits and so the way that you do like the yoga of writing 
is yeah. the way that you like, we need to, we need to practice the yoga of self-compassion. You talk about that in your book. And I think that you have like a very, you've, you've made huge leaps, but it's good yeah. to hear that you're also like, Hey, I'm still working on this shit too. Like, it's, oh, yeah. <laughs> I haven't mastered any of this stuff. No. You know, and you talk about that in your book, like it's a work in process. Oh, I, this is all, I am very much on the path. I am not an expert in any of this. I have a lot of experience because I'm always asking questions and the invitation to anyone who reads my book or follows my work at all is just, please join me on this path. Like we can ask questions together. Um, I think the one, I think if the thing about me that maybe sets me up just a little bit apart is I always want to try. Like I have a t-shirt that says um, like never not trying, you know, (laughs) like I'm never not asking a question or curious or just following a thing or what, where could this lead me and can I get better at this thing? Um, And, and so it's really about like deepening, you know, when I think about wanting to take my own life and, you know, 10 years ago and where I am now it's not that I don't have the dark thoughts. It's not that I don't fall into rock bottom situations. Again, it's that the fall is very different and it doesn't feel, it's not so hard to get up. Um, it's not so hard to comfort myself and soothe myself. It's easier and easier to get back on the path, but I'm definitely still very much on the path. Yeah. I think a good segue would be to talk about you know, obviously we're, we're both being vulnerable here talking about our own, um, our own path and our own sort of the things that we want to work on, but how do you reckon with that vulnerability? Like when you wrote the book, did you process or understand that this was going to show a side of you that maybe your friends and family didn't know? And you're so honest in it about yourself and about other people in your life or how you perceive their behaviors or the way that they treated you, whether that's your parents or friends or ex-boyfriends or whatever. So I, I assume you knew that this could get ugly in your personal life by having this honesty. If someone read this that was close to you or that knew you, they might say, hey, Tara, what the fuck? Like, how did you work through that? How do you be, how do you understand that like there's a process to the vulnerability and that this could also be uncomfortable and you know, that honesty and that vulnerability could lead to just more discomfort for you and people that you cared about? You know, honestly, I didn't, (laughs) I didn't think about it. I was just like, I need to write this. I'm just going to fucking go over here and write this now. And it needs to be said. And the only, when it was done, I gave a copy of it to anybody who was mentioned in it that was in my, that I wanted in my life. So if it was like an ex-boyfriend, like, no friggin' way. No, no, you're not going to come to the book. But like my dad or my sister or my you know best friends. And I gave it to them one year in advance. And I said, if you have anything you want me to change, please tell me because our relationship is more important than a book and more important than, you know, my truth. So give me your feedback. Because for me, it was, I needed to write it and be honest. And then I knew I could pull back. If there was something that really upset somebody that I disclosed, I knew I could just pull back. But it, but I was never going to be able to pull back if I didn't go all the way there. And there was very little that anybody wanted me to change. You know, my dad, who I'm, I'm really honest about growing up, um, you know, abused and neglected, 
he said, I'll never forget it. He said, don't change a word. This is all true. This all happened and I'm sorry. And it was the first time we ever had an honest conversation actually about my childhood and how difficult it, it had been. And, and it was a huge gift. It was a huge validation of you're not crazy. This is what you went through. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, it, it never even occurred to me at work. Like it didn't really occur to me that maybe our bosses would see me differently. And I think they did. I, I, th- I think in, I think there were things that perhaps they didn't really want me to disclose or talk about, but I wasn't, you know, I just, I, I just didn't let it get in my way too much. So you just kind of let the truth speak for itself and then worried about whatever consequences were going to come from that. Yeah. And I think it was really thoughtful of you to hand it to people that were important to you and be like, let me know if this is too much and we can figure out a, a different way to do it. But on the heels of that, like, are there other people or acquaintances in your life that have you noticed negative behavior from any of those people or people just tangentially in your life now that you've had this sort of newfound we're going to call it success, Tara. I know you might not sit, <laughs> sit well with you. We're going to call it that. You know, have have are, have certain individuals treated you differently due to this new role that you occupy? And you know, I, I always think that a lot of it is jealousy that people are, see you doing something that you're passionate about and that you're good at, and other people know deep down that maybe they're not doing the thing that they're really passionate or good at. And that's just my own personal perspective on it. But have you noticed that? Has it changed any relationships in your life? Do people treat you differently now? It's interesting. Mostly I'm very lucky in that people in my life have been very supportive and, you know, even online, you know, I went from having nobody, you know, um, on Instagram to this big community of just the most loving people who they're trying to get right with their souls and they're on the path with me and it's, it's quite beautiful. So mostly it's been a really positive reaction. Um, I will say I had a couple friends who questioned if disclosing things, you know, particularly on my social media, would, would I be judged? You know, in particular, would, would people want to work with me if they knew that I suffered from depression? And I was like, I work in comedy. Like, have you met a comedian? These are some of the most depressed people on earth. Like, if anything, I think it'll make me more relatable. But I do remember having a couple friends who made me feel ashamed, who kind of said, like, isn't this public therapy to some extent? Um, And that was painful. But what I kind of recognized was they were trying to protect me. It It wasn't like a personal attack. It wasn't that they thought I was bad. It was their own baggage. It was something made them uncomfortable and so then they put that judgment on me it really wasn't about me um and so you know and that's a big takeaway in the book is that the way people treat you it's not personal it just isn't it's how it's their own perspective the lens they're looking at life through and so I remember these couple of friends, you know, pulling me aside and saying like is this going to ruin your career is this going to make it harder for you to get a job later And that I ultimately just had a lot of empathy for them, that they really thought that this was, that being honest, being authentic was um, a detriment, was a problem, and that that's kind of how they saw their lives. So 
generally it's been very positive and I've really learned much more about other people through their reactions to the book than have felt like feelings of negativity or like, oh, that person's jealous of me. It's just given me a window in, into people. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I've, we talked about this on a previous episode, but, but I think a lot of what happens is people have a certain perception of you in their lives and the role that you serve for them. And the moment that that perception is questioned or threatened, it leads to discomfort and disorder in their own sort of persona and where you fit into their life. And so the moment totally. that they're like, wait, she's trying to talk about her own sort of mental health issues online. Like uh, she shouldn't be doing that because that's not my understanding of who she is. And I've not seen that vulnerability from her. And that makes me uncomfortable. Precisely. And I think anytime we judge, anytime we judge anyone for anything, it's part of that. It, it, it's a part of our persona and our ordering of the world. And when we as human beings can't make sense of that order, it becomes uncomfortable. And so our first reaction is how do I put things back into the order that made me comfortable before? The problem is, is that the world is like this very disorder, disorderly right. thing. And so we're constantly feeling that. And the moment you just kind of let go of all of that and just let people just kind of be like, whatever it is, what it is. I think it, it's like very liberating, but for many people, they're still grasping onto that. And it sounds like those friends still had that approach to seeing you do something that was out of the ordinary for them. Yeah, absolutely. What was the hardest part of writing this book for you? Was it reliving the experiences of your childhood? Was it simply the dedication of writing every day? Was it the editing process? Was it fear of uh, judgment and critique? Was it a combination of all of those things? Like, can you walk me through the sort of difficulty slash fear process? Because I think I think as an artist, like, You've got to have a fearlessness, but there's always that voice in the back of your head that's there to protect you of like, this could all go horribly wrong, or this is really hard for me to relive because you talk, you know, very detailed about your childhood, which was rough. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was the hardest part was, um, needing to sit down and relive traumatic experiences over and over and over again and try to, you know, set a, a narrative scene the book is marketed as self-help, but as you've read it, it's a memoir and it has, you know, scenes, narrative scenes of what this looked like, what it sounded like, what it felt like to be in these positions. And so it would get really dark. You know, I'd be sitting at my computer visualizing, you know, what was it like when that family of deer died in the pool and their waterlogged corpses were pulled up on the brick patio and what did that blue tarp look like? And what were the, what was the sound of my mom and dad screaming at each other about what to do while I'm like looking at the deer and really being specific about the texture of those moments and having to sit in them and then rewrite them like 55 times and, re, you know, look at it and look at it. And if the book feels like you're in, having a conversation with a friend um, that's because I sweat over every word. Like it's not, it's funny. It's like the biggest compliment someone can give me is that it feels effortless because there was so much effort into making it feel like a conversation. Like that's not an easy thing, at least for me to pull off. So reliving the traumatic experiences and really having to visualize them, that was definitely the hardest part of writing the book. Was there any catharsis with that? Because I know that these are 
things that you've thought about and had to relive. And I know that you've, you've done therapy. Uh, I'm not, <laughs> you mentioned that in the book, I've done it too. I don't, I'm not blowing up your spot or anything. Um, so you've relived those situations and discussed them, I assume with therapists, but oh, then to have to, yeah. to, to incorporate it into a creative process. Was there a healing mechanism to that at all? Or is it still stuff that you aren't quite healed over from yet? Well, I think your relationship to trauma is always changing. I don't know that you ever like fully, fully, fully heal what happens. You know, I hope you do, but I think it's more a process of you, you reprocess whatever it was that happened and you gain a different perspective. And so even some things in the book, in the very beginning of the book, I go way out of my way to say, I didn't have the worst childhood ever. Other people have had it worse. I go on and on and on about how not important my suffering was. And I've come to realize recently, like, why does that, why is that even in there? Um, there is no hierarchy of pain, to use Lori Gottlieb's amazing um, turn of phrase. People go through terrible things, and unless they deal with them, then the situation just deals with them forever. And so I, I don't think writing the book was cathartic, but I do think that I have been in the process of reprocessing and re and changing my alignment so that it's like a lot of what I went through made me feel very doomed and trapped. And so basically, you know, when you're, when I'm five and have no agency, can't get out of the house, you know, just at the mercy of my parents, then, you know, today as a 35 year old reorienting myself and remembering, like, I'm not five anymore. I'm 35. I'm the worst things in my life already happened to me. Like, it's a constant reorientation. And so I think the book maybe helped me gain that perspective. But in and of itself, I didn't feel like, aha, like this has healed me. And this has been cathartic. Yeah, I mean, I think in a way, just what you mentioned is there's some credence to there's some healing there, right? That you even yeah. came to the realization that like, I I sort of gave a qualifier before I even talked about all this, all this, hor all these horrible things that happened to me. And I often felt that way too about my own, you know, abuse as a child. I was physically and mentally, you know, emotionally abused. And, and, uh, you didn't realize that as, as a child, you, you, you just thought, oh, I got hit and I got yelled at a lot because I was a bad child. But now when you, when I have a child, <laughs> I realize that like, they're not, children aren't inherently bad. They just, their brains don't work yet. <laughs> so they don't understand things. And I think that, um, you start to begin to understand that the people around you really were just creating an environment that is fed off of their own personal shortcomings and their own trauma. It doesn't necessarily help to heal over your stuff, but it helps you gain perspective and understanding of like they were doing the best they could they weren't doing well but that was the best that they could do and it doesn't mean that i have to continue to hold all of this but it at least you know i i can hold some of it and i probably do but it allows me a little bit of wiggle room to understand or to begin to understand that like it's it's made you into who you are and i think that that's important it's like the power there's a lot of like power in the pain because Whoa. Yes. When, when you can when you can identify it and you know okay i know that that was wrong 
And the other thing too, is, you know, hearing the experiences that you had as a child and relating those to what I experienced as a child, I was like, okay, so my suffering is not singular because other people dealt with this type of abuse and it doesn't matter what your, you know, socioeconomic standing is or anything. Abuse is abuse and it affects all of us in different ways. I mean, obviously, like you said, some people have it really rough, but it's all relative to who you are and everyone's individual suffering is their own, right? So you have to kind of understand that and, and not you know, I even qualify my own suffering sometimes of like, well, you know, my parents were supportive and they were, but there was also this other side of things that was like pretty damaging and hurtful and harmful. So yeah, it's just a hard thing to, to reckon with and, and understand, but it's, it's like very brave of you to write about it in detail. And so I commend you on that because you have to, re you had to relive all that stuff and that's not easy. But I also think that it's, it, when I was reading through your book, it was almost like when I went to a therapist and told them about how I was treated as a child. And they said to me, like, I am so sorry that happened to you. Yeah. That was like the first time other than mm -hmm. in my own head where someone else said to me, that was wrong and it shouldn't have happened. And so when I was reading your book, I kind of had that feeling again of like, oh, it was wrong and it shouldn't have happened. And she felt that too. So I felt very connected to you in that, that regard. And you, you know, the more that you understand that, that trauma, you also understand your behaviors too, like why you do certain yeah. things, why you're drawn to certain people, why you're drawn to certain behaviors. And so then you can begin to deconstruct and amend and change your, your patterns of behavior. And that was just right. a long ranting way of me saying that I appreciate you sharing that stuff because it was helpful for me. No, oh, I mean, first off, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you went through <laughs> that. And there's what's so painful is, and, and, and you said something that struck me. It's not only is no kid um, born bad, it's all kids are born good. They're born with good little souls that are so unique and distinct. And, you know, I'm, you see it with your daughter. I see it with all my friends kids like they are to some extent you like you're you see like oh you have a soul like you're a person you you came with a personality and for sure it's good like no kid deserves ever to be treated with screaming hitting it's and when I look at little kids now when I think of my best friend's kids and I imagine my me in that position and like what would I do if my best friend's daughter, Maya, was subjected to something I went through? I'd call the police. I'd protect that kid. I wouldn't let that kid go through that. And if that's how I would treat her, Maya, the little girl, then that's the kind of compassion I need to have for me because I went through that. And I, so, you know, when we're talking about like reorienting, it's taken me writing a book and doing EMDR therapy to really understand what happened was wrong. My parents were doing the best they could and that was wrong. It was wrong what happened. And I think a lot of the readers of this book are people who had different shades and were told, but I'm, you know, but this is pretty good. Like, this isn't the worst. Like, mom and dad are screaming. There's a, you know, there's alcohol involved, there's an affair, there's this, but like, you're good, but you're fine. You've had it pretty good. Um, and I think that there's an awakening that we just don't need to constantly insist to ourselves that things are fine. 
Like, there's no reason for that. There's no reason to sugarcoat it and say, like, I had the most supportive parents when you didn't or, or to make it that black and white. Like, you can have supportive parents and they can be abusive. You can you can have both. And, and I do think there's a real awakening that we can't just move past, that the passage of time does not equal healing. Like, you don't heal just because you got older. Until you deal with those things, they just deal with you. So thank you so much for sharing. And I, and I am sorry. And, you know, it's not right. Yeah, it isn't. But it it's also... I mean, I don't want to say it's it good, happens. But it, it, it happened and it's heart heartening to know that that there are other people who have gone through those experiences. And I've I've seen in my own parenting that there are times that I fail and I fall back into patterns that I witnessed when I was a parent. I mean, excuse me, when I was a child. Right. Where, right. you know, I get bent out of shape about something or there's an argument and, and things get heated and, and that's done the wrong way. And I just don't want to do that ever, you know, anymore. And part of it is just, it's my own failure, but it's a conditioning problem as well. Like I was conditioned to see, to, to, to witness people to conflict in a certain way. And so to deprogram right. yourself from that is really, really difficult. And I've done it. I've done a good job of it, but there's still these remnants that kind of pop up. And I think that, you know, you've probably witnessed that in your own life and the way that you've dealt with conflict too, because of what you've witnessed and how you've, you, you see people interact when they're at loggerheads. Right. You think, okay, this is how I have to do it. And for my entire life, you know, up until probably the last four years, I did it a certain way. And then I realized like, no, you don't have to do it that way at all. <laughs> that's not yeah. how you do it. And, and I think that that's a gift too, is when you commit these behaviors or when you act in a certain way, having the self, having to be able to reflect and be like, no, I don't want to continue the same thing that I saw or that I did or the way that that I was conditioned. And that's like important part of growth is like stopping patterns. And yeah, I think and your book is, is your book is like a testament of like, there was a cycle here. It stops with me. Well, and I think that a lot of people feel that way. That's how me and my sister, we, that is how we view what happened to us as we got lucky that we had really good souls that wanted to heal. And we, you know, my parents were both abused. Like people who abuse people, it's not because they had like a sunny, happy childhood. That's just what they learned to do. And with me and my sister, we've really said like, well, it stops with us. We could fuck up in a million other ways, but this is not going to be the way that we screw things up. And we have the power to change. One of the main things I hope people take away from my book and my work more generally is that you actually have the agency and the power to change your life. And it is, in fact, your responsibility to own your life and enjoy your life because otherwise it's all kind of a waste. Like, otherwise, what are we even doing here? And I think people get really lost in they think that it's going to be too overwhelming to face these things head on they think uh, if I deal with the, my alcoholic mom I, I'm not, I don't have time to deal I just I need to do my job I need to do this yada 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 and what they don't realize is what's overwhelming them is the fact that they have you know they've built their house on a graveyard of bad memories and things that happened to them and belief systems that don't work in their current lives. And I'm saying, no, like you have the power today to change yourself. 
I did it and I had no special qualifications or reason that I should be able to. Um, so if, you know, a drunk dialing her therapist, 25 year old mess and Spanx can do it. I'm pretty sure anybody can do it with the proper, um, self-compassion with the proper, you know, resources or thinking about it or not drinking your way out of it. I think so much is possible. Yes. I think we'll, I think we'll end on that, that wonderful message. And this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm glad we got to talk about not only your book, but so much of what was behind it and so much of what makes it so special. And uh, thank you for sharing more of your story. And thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. And thank you for your experience. We, we, we really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Ian. And thank you I'm for very sharing. Proud of, I'm, of course, I'm very proud of you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm proud of all your success. I know you're writing a new, uh, another book, and I look forward to reading that one as well. So thank you very much. We'll, we'll talk soon. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Tara Schuster. Once again, her book is called Buy Yourself the Fucking Lilies, and I encourage you to check it out. Also, please follow Tara on Instagram. She posts a lot of updates about her work, but also little self-help cues that you may find useful, and she's at Tara Schuster on Instagram. I think the important takeaways for me were that having some sort of creative or expressive ritual is really important. Also, not having any form of expectation and simply doing it is vital to the process. It feels good just to do it. And if you remove the idea that you're creating something that millions of people are going to see or it's going to change the world, it takes the pressure off and enables you to simply let something out of yourself from deep within. And that's what expression is all about. I think that it's all about showing the world who you are, giving the world the gift of you, Uh, So don't be afraid to paint on your own hidden cave wall. Put your handprint on the bottom and maybe someone somewhere at some point will find it and be inspired to do the same thing. Be well. I'll speak to you soon. This just is.